Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. And we're off. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. On this episode, I've got a very special episode for you today for two reasons. The first one is I didn't, I didn't have enough time to prepare for what I wanted to do today. And the second one is, well, I came across a image somebody put on uh, Twitter, and it was from an artist that I know um, some about, uh, Salvador Dali. If you guys know anything about uh, about Salvador Dali, he's a very interesting character, a relatively modern um, artist. I had my first encounter with uh, Salvador Dali in college, actually. Um, did a class, it was a humanities class, but it was basically about Western civilization, and it was mostly art, architecture, that sort of thing. Um, it was really interesting. I liked it a lot. But um, towards the end of that class, we were kind of getting into the modern era, First World War, Second World War, that kind of thing. Salvador Dali pops up in that mix. He's an artist that um, talked a lot about the unconscious. He was fascinated with, well, the kind of images that are have symbolic meaning, the kind of images that you might see in dreams, but definitely the images that you see in art. And as an artist, he was somebody that was using um, his imagination, his dreams um, as a um, resource, as a reservoir for um, imagery, motifs, things that he would use in his art. And if you've ever seen any Dali art, it's trippy. It is trippy. Um, in that class uh, that I told you about, there was um, there was a movie. A lot. Some people don't know this. Let me uh, see if I can pull this up here. All right, so this. Unshin Andalou, the Andaluvian dog, something like that. Louis Brunel, Salvador Dali. If you've seen this movie, it's short. It's not a long movie. It's black and white. It was made in the 20s. It was one of the early, early films. Um, what you see on the screen now, though, is, is, well, this was on the cover of the movie, but it's also one of the opening scenes. And in the movie, if you've seen this, you already know it's disturbing. But you basically have this woman, and somebody walks up from behind her and kind of opens up her eye, and you see what he's doing with his fingers. But if you notice his other hand, he has a straight razor in the other hand. So what happens happens in the movie is this woman just stoically sits there while these hands from behind her open up her eye and then proceed to cut her eyeball open with a razor blade. And this was the early days of special effects, uh, but it looks very much like the fluid in her eye just leaks out all over her face. And um, the professor in college explained or tried to explain the imagery from the movie, and it's just full of imagery. I mean, it's driven by symbols. I mean, this is the black and white days, and it's before sound, right? So this is totally silent. So it has to kind of be driven by the images. And um, when this woman's eye gets cut open and everything floods out of it, the movie gets weird, gets really weird. Um, The professor explained uh, at the time that cutting the eye open and the fluid coming out is a symbol, is supposed to symbolize the unconscious flowing out of the woman's mind. It's like you're opening up a hole um, in her her head, uh, in this case her eye, 
where all of those repressed and unconscious things can just flow out. And so the rest of the movie is about kind of the unconscious becoming conscious. And it's very trippy. It, it, it very much feels like a dream. If you um, watch the movie, it's, it's like watching somebody else's dream. It's weird. It's full of imagery. It's very cool. I, I'd encourage you to check it out. It, I think it's 20, 30 minutes long. It's not super long. It's worth a watch. It's one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. And that's saying something. Um, I think what comes to my mind is um, this movie, Unshin Andalou. Um, Clockwork Orange comes to mind, especially a couple of scenes in particular. And then um, the original Exorcist comes to mind. And there's one scene in particular. There's a couple there, but one scene in particular that was disturbing, like disturbing to me. Now that movie came out uh, before I was Born, I think it came out in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. I saw it uh, when I was young. I, it, they re-released it in the theaters when I was a teenager. And I saw it in the theaters. And uh, it was that was a rough experience. Um, it was a rough experience. Uh, point is, there are some movies that are just psychologically disturbing. And this is definitely one of them. Um, so this is my introduction to Salvador Dali. Mostly this movie, and then seeing some of the paintings that he did... And we're going to talk about one today. Um, I think what I'll do is show you. I think I'll show you. We'll just move right to the image. There's a couple that I want to show you today. But this one is what we're going to talk about. It's weird, right? For the people that are listening, um, just to the podcast version, I'll do some explaining. But the image on the screen is a painting that Salvador Dali did. And I, sh I want to show this to you because I want to try my, I want to take a crack at interpretation. So I've been doing a lot of work on the podcast, studying uh, Carl Jung and his pupils, um, studying the types of imagery that appear in mythology and in art and in dreams. And then the interpretations that people like Louise von Franz and Ed Edinger and some others um, were doing. And if you, if you remember, I, I bought a copy of Aesop's Fables. I tried to talk about Aesop's. It didn't go quite as, as well as I was hoping. Um, since then, I've acquired um, Hans Christian Andersen and um, the Grimm's Brothers. So I've got a whole bunch of old fairy tales that I'm interested to look at and see if I can do some interpretation, the, type, the same type of interpretation that Freud would do with dreams, but doing it with these fairy tales. So that's sort of that's sort of what I'm toying with here. And what I want to try to bring to you today is some version of this. Um, just kind of coincidental that I saw this Salvador Dali painting. One of my one of my friends on Twitter posted a different one and um, was asking, you know, what what's your favorite Dali painting? And I came across this one and uh, it's interesting. And it's got lots of imagery in it that I want to talk about. Um, but what I want to try to do is I just put it put it out there for you guys. Um, one of the things Kyle and I talked about the last time we got together was about it was about coincidences. It was if you remember, I was talking about books that I bought years and years ago that have been sitting on the shelf unread, and then after many you know many years later, um, I I find myself fascinated by a topic, and the books that I bought years and years ago are by some of the same authors and thinkers surrounding those topics that have become such a fascination for me as an adult. And I'm like, wait, man, is it possible that uh, it's not a coincidence? Is it possible that the things that shine out, uh, the things that I take interest in, the things that, that draw me in, that's not something I'm doing consciously. Like how how I get attracted to a certain book or a certain image or a certain song or whatever. It's not at all obvious that it's something I'm doing. I'm not involved in it. It just happens to me, and that's mysterious. Whenever that happens, it's mysterious. Um, and I think that plays in the conversation about interpretations of symbols, of dreams, of myths. Because the question is, if there's symbols there that have meaning, and you can get some kind of cohesive message from a piece of art, let's say, or from a myth or story that you hear, and it has a particular meaning to you that's, um, you know, something that maybe it changes the way you think or changes the way you act. It's meaningful. It's important. It's valuable. 
is it possible that that is there and the artist didn't intend it? Do you think? You think it's possible there could be meaning there that let's say I'm, I read into it or it's an interpretation of mine. It's still valid. It's valid for me. It's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's what it means. Is that possible that that can happen when it's not the artist's intention? Like the artist is unconsciously selecting images for reasons of their own. They have meaning and purpose and intention of their own for the artist. And yet there's some like archetypal meaning. There's something deeper um, that will be meaningful in other ways that the artist didn't intend. And if that's the case... Is that a matter of coincidence too? Just like the old books that I bought that ended up being really important to me later in life. Um, it was a whim, but it became very significant. Is it possible that artists are like that? And what does that mean? You know, you think about a song that you've heard a million times. Maybe it's a song you love, a band you love. And you hear that song again for the thousandth time, but after some event, after some life-changing event, and you hear the song differently, you're like, oh yeah, I needed to hear that. It's the same song. Why didn't you hear it before? Why didn't it have that meaning before? That there's some quality of meaning, maybe. It's almost like, it's like a skeleton key. You know, it's like, it's meaning full stop without any specifics. And it takes somebody like me, it takes an observer to observe that meaning and take some specific meaning out of it. It's like, it's like maybe the artist is toying with potential for meaning or some, you know, undifferentiated meaning just in its purest form. And maybe that's all there is, you know we get hippie for a second, maybe that's what the world is. A lot of uh, philosophers of mind and neuroscientists and, and people like that will talk about the world that we experience, the world of our perceptions, as being something like a world of symbols that we're navigating. And the argument, we've said it before, but the argument's pretty simple. It's that reality is more complex and there's more information in it than a human brain is as fast a computer as it is, to, is simply insufficient to make sense of it. There's too much going on. That's the idea of, uh, that Henri Bergson talked about when he said consciousness is something like a reducing valve. You know, maybe, maybe it's our biology, our ability to process that consciousness or something. That is a reducing valve. The truth is that what reality is is far too complex for it to be actionable or manageable or cohesive or coherent to any individual who doesn't filter it. You got to take some of it away so that you can, so it's manageable. And there are people who think, lots of people who think that our vision of reality is like that. Uh, we talked about Bernardo Castro before, um, the philosopher who, who talked about exactly this. He, if you remember, he said, our perceptions are like the dials on an airplane cockpit. They tell you all sorts of information that's useful for you, but really only the information that's useful for you. And you can fly that plane safely with that information with ever, without ever having to look out the window and see what's actually there. And so that is the sort of uh, analogy that biology has evolved um, and we've, we're adapted to this simplified version of reality that allows us to survive and allows us to think and act in the world. But what we're, what, the world that we're in, the world that we're acting in is a, is a ghost of the real world. It's, it's got a fraction of the meaning and information that's really there. And that may all sound hippy-dippy, but we know this is true because we don't see everything. When we look at a cat on the street, we see a furry mammal, right? We don't see the lice that are living on its, on its uh, hairs. We don't see the microorganisms living on its skin. We don't see, you know, the uh, cells that make up the body. We don't see the atoms that make up the, uh, you know, make up the cells. There's lots of things going on that we don't see, there's a lot more going on that we're not aware of. We only see a simplified version. 
So we know that. I mean, we should, there should be no argument there. And guess what I'm getting at is that when we look at a piece of art and we say that it's built from symbols, I just want to point out that there's a parallel to, <clears throat> to perception, to our conscious experience, that it's something like looking at the dials on a cockpit or looking at a simplified picture, a representation of the world, not the, the world as it really is. And art is like that. It's a representation of the world. So that's weird. Um, and I guess the same question applies when we're looking at a piece of art or we're examining a story or a myth and we're trying to figure out what the symbols mean, what the meaning is, um, that there's something very analogous to that that we're doing every day in our, in our daily lives. We're looking out at a symbolic representation of the world, you know, and those symbols all have meaning and we're making and we're trying to make sense of it. It's weird, right? All right, so I want to talk about a specific picture and see if we can do some level of interpretation. Um, the Salvador Dali piece we're looking at, if anybody's just listening to the podcast, you can look up Geopoliticus. Uh, that'll get you there. If you put in Dali um, or Geopoliticus, the painting is actually called Geopoliticus Child Watching the Birth of the New Man. And for the people that are just that are just uh, listening here, I'll describe what what you see in the picture just real real briefly. It, right in the center of the picture, you have what very clearly seems to be an egg. The egg is cracked down the middle, but it's a large egg. It's a, it's an egg large enough to fit a Volkswagen. Um, and inside of this cracked egg is a is a sort of opening, and there's a human man climbing out of the opening. And you can see his head and his foot are still in the egg. And he's clearly trying to push himself out. Like he's hatching out of the egg. Um, but you can't see his face. You can just see part of his torso and his arm. And then on the surface of the egg, apart from the crack which you see, you also see patterns on the egg that make the egg look like a globe. So the patterns clearly show South America and Africa to the south, Europe to the north. The man seems to be emerging out of um, North America, by the way. That, that's the section of the egg where the man is coming out. And then the egg is, seems to be sitting on a like, a, like a cloth or a sheet. There's kind of a barren desert landscape behind you with some mountains. Um, floating above the egg is something a lot like the sheet that's, that's on the bottom, but it's kind of draping and dripping down towards the egg. It looks very wispy and strange, kind of like a canopy, but it's tattered, you know? And the weird part about this is um, there's a couple interesting things. There's a building off in the distance and some mountains and all that. There's a couple of people in the distance, by the way, uh, that are hard to see. But the most stunning thing here, apart from the egg, is this kind of emaciated woman that's in the foreground. And she's got a, a leaf over her genitalia, so she kind of gives you the impression that maybe she's some kind of an Eve figure. And then down below at her feet, you have this child, this human child. And the woman is pointing at the egg and the man emerging out of it. The child is sort of scared and hiding behind the, the mother, but is also looking out at the egg. And, and another strange bit here, and I'll, I'll zoom in for the people who can see this. On her arm, on the woman's arm, um, there seems to be another figure. It's not clear whether it's standing directly on her arm or whether it's one of these... Um, images that are off in the distance. Uh, but, but it's very strange. It's like this little miniature person that seems to kind of be standing on the arm of the woman. So I don't know what you think any of this might mean. I'm going to tell you what I think, what comes to my mind, right? So I don't have any control over what meaning occurs to me when I look at these images. I don't have any control over it. What I mean is I look at the images, I focus on something, ideas and thoughts come to mind. I'm not doing anything to make them come to mind. I'm not selecting the, the thoughts that are associated with the images. They're just coming to me automatically. Okay. Whenever that happens, like I'm breathing right now, but I'm not thinking about it. It's happening automatically. Whenever you see that Something's happening automatically. 
you, you know that there's something going on that involves deep levels of your brain and your unconscious, right? Things that are so deeply ingrained in you that, and they're too important, by the way, for you to be responsible for controlling, like your breathing or your beating of your heart. They're just happening automatically. Same thing here. When, when meaning comes to mind, when associations come to mind, they are automatic. Something, something is happening within me that I'm not a part of. And what I, what, what I experience is the outcome, the meaning, the, the associations, and nothing else. If you've never thought about that, it's very strange. It makes you wonder. Not only do we wonder where our interests come from, but we also have to wonder where, where the meaning comes from, where the associations come from. And they are learned to a certain degree. But they're organized in a way that's also unconscious. You know, the reason why certain things are associated with each other is not at all clear. You know, like the idea of the eyeball in mythology and consciousness and the, and the, and the falcon. You know, like all of these images from, let's say, Egyptian mythology. It's not at all clear that, that this image has to do with consciousness or with God. Or at least why they, all of these images would be associated with one thing. An eye, an eye, a falcon, right? Like what, what does that have to do with anything? So how these things group up is, is something that's archetypal. It's something that is also unconscious. We don't exactly understand why they group up the way they do. All right, so I'm going to get into this. Um, when I'm done, I'm going to read to you what Wikipedia says um, the meaning of this painting is so that you can see what the artist meant, uh, intended, or at least what the art critics have determined versus what my instincts are. So let's do it. Okay, first thing I want to do is focus on the egg. Thing in the middle, because it's clearly uh, the, most, the most dramatic. It's the center of the piece. And when you, first of all, when you see an egg that's not the size of an ordinary egg, it's giant, you know, there's something symbolic going on, maybe something supernatural going on. Um, the fact that you have a man coming out of, an, out of an egg is interesting. I mean, we realize that human beings aren't hatched from eggs the way that snakes or, or birds are, um, and that's kind of what we see happening. Um, you also know that um, a man is clearly being born out of an egg, and that's not something that, that strikes us as strange because new creatures are born from eggs, and we see that all the time. It, it, that, that's not an unusual thing. But this is a fully grown man. It's a fully grown man emerging from the egg, and that seems weird. Next, if we focus on this, uh, this lady here on the, on the right of the egg, this Eve figure, um, she's definitely making reference to the egg. She's pointing to it. Um, she's got this child with her. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is that I'm noticing kind of three main characters. The man coming out of the egg, the woman standing outside, and the child. And of course, I think about all kinds of things. I think about the nuclear family, you know, husband, wife, child. Um, I think about, um, you know, the fact that you need a, a man and a woman to, have a, to have, have a child. And we not only see an image of a child, but this image of a hatching egg. So all that seems like it's necessary. It needs to be there in the image, that kind of thing. But there's something deeper mythologically that comes to mind. And it's not a, a stretch. I'll tell you why. The egg is something that has religious connotations. It always has, going back as far as human beings go. Um, there's all sorts of mythology that talks about a cosmic egg. And that simply means, you know, like you could think about it like the Big Bang. It's, it's the singularity. It's whatever the thing is that opened up and the world came out. You know, whatever, whatever the origins are of being, of the cosmos, of consciousness, whatever our origins are. You know, I, I like to call that God. It makes the most sense to me, but a lot of people, a lot of people will uh, will res resist that. But the idea here is, the cosmic egg is um, is clearly what we're seeing here, as far as I'm concerned, um, and that has to do with the birth of the cosmos. It has to do with origins, ontology. It has to do with ideas and stories we tell about how we got here, how the world got here, that kind of thing. So we're talking about God. We're talking about religion um, and origins. There's just no doubt about it as far as I'm concerned. This giant cosmic egg. 
And then we have the man, the woman, and the child. And so you guys probably won't be surprised to hear me say this, but the earliest mythology that we have, going back to ancient Babylon, has these same three characters appearing. Uh, we've talked about it from the perspective of ancient Egypt, and we've talked about it from the perspective of Babylon, being that those are are, are sort of two oldest um, um, threads of, of mythology that we still have access to. In the Babylonian version, which is or the Sumerian, which is the oldest, what we have is a story called the Enuma Elish about the creation of the universe. And in that story, you have, well, it kind of goes something like this. You have the god the goddess, I should say, Tiamat. She's the dragon of chaos. She's the primordial goddess from which, you know, all things get get born, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase. She's paired up with her masculine counterpart, who is the god Apsu. So Tiamat and Apsu is the goddess of chaos and the god of order. You see, and in the beginning, Tiamat and Apsu were not separate things. They were one thing. And this is a symbol that I like to call the Ouroboros, but there, I think Jung used the word syzygy, and there are some others that you might think about. The cosmic egg is definitely one of them. So you might imagine Apsu and Tiamat being together. And their, to, their being together is something like an egg for a couple of reasons. Um, Apsu is the god of fresh water. Tiamat is the god, goddess of salt water. So you understand that they're both, they're both water. They're one thing. Okay, symbolically we have this masculine and feminine division among them, but they're really one thing. And in the beginning, before the world, the cosmos was born, they were in union. So you've got the masculine and feminine, Tiamat and Apsu, in union. So there, you can imagine them in a sexual embrace. You can imagine them wrapped up, you know, within one another. And if you do, you kind of get this image of an egg anyway. These, of the great god and the great goddess as one thing. They're like wrapped up in this sort of round thing, the round chaos. It's another symbol that, that comes up when we talk about origins and mythology. And like any sexual union, when you bring the opposites together, when you bring the masculine and the feminine together, which you see in the union of Tiamat and Apsu, what you have is a generative act. You have a sexual act. And what happens when... When you have sex, is something new is created, something is born, something is conceived, something new and novel is, is brought into being. And that's what happens in the Sumerian story. Tima and Apsu are just churning out newness, you know? They're together, and their togetherness is just bringing new things into being, like, like gangbusters, you know? This infinite process of creation. But that creation isn't going anywhere, because there's nowhere for it to go. There's only... There's only the cosmic egg, union of Tiamat and Apsu. There's nothing else. So where do all these new things that are being born, where do they go? They're like, they're like born within, right? So they're hidden still within this, whatever the primordial symbols are. So you might, you might imagine this egg filling up with being, you know? And if you read the story, if you read the myth, it's all these new gods that are being born. And the gods all represent, you know, natural forces and feelings and things that are go going to exist in the world once the world is here. And then what happens in the story is Tiamat and Apsu are separated. Salt water and the fresh water are separated from one another. The masculine and the feminine are separated from one another. And what that separation does is it creates space, right? Space between them. And that space between them is where is where the cosmos is. It's where reality is, is able to exist. It's the space that is made available for all of the things in the egg to exist. So you can imagine the egg, the separation of Tiamat and Apsu is like the egg being cracked open. And, and what comes to my mind is something like Pandora's box being opened. And everything just floods out, you know? So Tiamat and Apsu are separated and that allows a place, that allows space and time, that allows a place for existence. And everything in the egg it gets, to, it gets to come out and be. That's why we call it being. Um, in the story, the thing that separates Tiamat and Apsu, because you might wonder, what is that? What's going on? The thing that separates Tiamat and Apsu is actually 
what's born between them. So everything being born between them is actually pushing them apart. So you can imagine it's like a child that's being born that finds it hit itself in the middle between mother and father, between masculine and feminine, between chaos and order, between being and non-being, whatever you want to, however you want to put that. And these characters, the great mother, the great father, and the divine son, these are characters that we see in all of the myths that we have about origins, about ontology, about how things came to be. And we see the same story in, we see the same characters in the hero story that talks about our own transformation. And Carl Jung does a great job, and Neumann also a great job of talking about these, these mythological characters as they play out in our, in our psyche, as they play out in our consciousness. So, so the story here is about a new being that is born from chaos and order, or, or the masculine and the feminine. This new being is, is like a new consciousness. It's like that new, that third thing that gets to exist between chaos and order. That's something that we call consciousness, the thing that rides that line between chaos and order, as Jordan Peterson likes to say. And you have to. I mean, we find ourselves in that same position, riding that line between chaos and order. And that, that is the zone of proximal development, another Jordan Peterson uh, quote. But it's something that he talks about as, as that creative flow, that place where you can be, where you can create new things. Artists are very, very familiar with this, this space that you can be. And so you have this psychological parallel that says chaos and order are required for this new being to come into existence. And that's a representation of consciousness, which is what we are. So this is what I see in the Salvador Dali painting. I see, I see the God, the great father. He's climbing out of the egg. He's the God of order. I see the woman on the right. She's the great mother. You can see the symbolism. Obviously, Eve um, is the same symbol that we use for the great mother in the Judeo-Christian culture. She's got this fig leaf or whatever it is covering up her genitalia. She very clearly seems to be an Eve figure, definitely a mother figure, definitely a primordial mother figure. You know, like a lot of times ancient people thought about this great mother idea as kind of the womb of nature. And so women are obviously have a womb and can bring new, new life into, into being through that womb. They see their, their being a primordial womb, and all of the things that exist came from it, just like you know, newness comes out of a out of a of a woman's womb or of an animal's womb, let's say, um, and, uh, and that's all very very also symbolized in this in this cracking of an egg. I mean, there's some you know, there's some sort of vulva image that you might be able to make out of that as well. You know, that's the that's the place where where babies come from, right? That's that's how they enter into the world. So you got all this stuff going on. I want to bring your attention now to this sheet that's laying below the egg and this sort of weird sheet that's hanging uh, that's hanging above it, sort of suspended in the air. I think that they represent um, also the union of opposites. You know, you, you can kind of see if this sheet on the bottom were kind of folded up on the egg and the sheet on the top were laid over top of it, it would kind of be like it's wrapped up like a present, you know? And the sheet from the from the bottom kind of falls open. The sheet from the top is sort of raised up, and that's how you can see this egg. You can imagine these things as being kind of wrapped around the egg at one point. And you can see the one on top is a little darker. The one on bottom is a little lighter. And so you have this contrast of dark and light. You have these opposites, again, that are represented here. The one on the top, I told you, is weird. It looks weird. Um... There's like all sorts of corners. There's way more corners than there should be. And they're all sort of um, in shadow and they're, they're dangling and draping down. And I have to say that this reminds me of something from a psychedelic um, visionary experience. It reminds me of something that is reported often in a DMT experience. It is a wispy, ghost-like, cloudy sort of substance that is commonly... Um, observed in the beginning, like right at the very beginning of a DMT experience before it gets too intense. So I think there's something interesting here um, that's also tied to the unconscious. It's tied to whatever 
whatever imagery you see in a psychedelic experience or one of the types of images that you see in a psychedelic experience, um, and, and I see a psychedelic experience as a more intimate experience of the things that are ordinarily unconscious. And so you still you have more evidence for this image above the egg to represent something like the unconscious. And the image below it, which is in light, uh, it's kind of, you know, like, like there's light shining on it, it's bright, that represents consciousness. So just like you have the masculine and feminine, the great, the great father and the great mother, they represent consciousness and unconsciousness. Again, opposites. And the new thing being born out of the egg, it's like the potential that this little boy is going to become. The little boy down by his mother's feet. It's going to grow up and become a man. Just like this figure you see in the middle of the egg. It's almost like the child is its own father in this in this instance because the only two images you see, the woman and the child, and there's something Oedipal about that, by the way. Um, and, and then this egg, of course, which is giving birth to something new. Well, where did it come from? You need you need a man and a woman for this. And the only man and woman there are the mother and its own her own infant. And there is something something Oedipal about that. Um, we did talk about the Oedipus myth already, and I'll remind you that the idea of of the hero usurping his father and sleeping with his mother and all of that, this, this Oedipal myth, um, it's weird. We've talked about that, but it really doesn't have anything to do with incest exactly. It's, it's symbolic. You know, to, to go back into your mother, to go back into the place that gave you birth, to go back to your place of origin, you can see that as some sort of a weird sexual thing, but symbolically it's, it's not really sexual at all. It's simply going, it's, it's an image of going back to the unconscious, which is the place where your consciousness came from. And the unconscious is represented by this great goddess. So you go back into your mother, the place that, that gave you birth. And you might, you might say that sounds a lot like incest, and a lot of people do. But the meaning there is not about incest, at least not in a sexual way. It's simply about returning to your own place of origin, the place where your consciousness emerged. And that place is the unconscious. All right, I want to I want to show you a couple of different images here. Um, let me let me bring your attention really quickly to bring your attention to Eve again. This woman here. Um, I want to show you that she's pointing. Okay, uh, I want to show you that she has this child here wrapped around her feet. And the reason I want to show you that is because I want to show you this. Let me stop this screen share for a second and show you a different one. All right, you guys familiar with this image? It's a famous statue of the Roman Emperor Augustus. I want you to notice he's pointing, just like she was pointing. He's got this cherub child down by his feet, just like uh, just like um, we saw in the Dali painting. It's actually quite similar, right? Quite stunning how similar that is. Now, this is a famous painting, or famous sculpture, I should say. Um, Augustus, you know, the, the, the emperor in his, uh, in his armor and robe, in wearing no shoes, this little cherub baby down by his feet, he's pointing. This is, what we, this is what we're seeing. The reason I want to show it to you is, obviously, there seems to be some um, connection between Dali's depiction of the great goddess and this depiction here of... Uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, what Caesar Augustus is most famous for is what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This is a time in the Roman Empire when, well, the fighting died down. There wasn't there was so much war, there wasn't so much expansion, um, and there wasn't so much conflict. Uh, so the Roman Empire was able to flourish. People were able to do business and trade. People were able to live their lives. And at the time, relative luxury and, and high technology and comfort. You know, the Roman Empire, they had, you know, you know what they had in the Roman Empire. They had, they had hot baths. They had, you know, um, plumbing. They had aqueducts. They had, you know, gladiatorial games. They had a sophisticated modern society. So the Pax Romana was really this extended period of, of peace where the Roman Empire was, well, heaven on earth, as close as it gets, you know. 
Um, down here you have this little Cupid, uh, the little the little child down by his uh, his feet is um, is Cupid. Um, so that is also um, known as Eros uh, to the to the Romans. But this is the the sort of god, you know, you know the Cupid idea, but the god of uh, romance and and um, is so highly associated with the goddess of love. So all of this you see um, reflected in that in that picture. I'm going to go back to it here. So just to bring your attention, uh, let's see back back to Dali. You definitely see that same image here. Okay. Next thing I want to show you, if I zoom back in on her arm, is this this weird figure standing here, kind of perched on her arm. Here we have this image of the great mother goddess uh, with this sort of small miniature being standing on its arm. And I want to show you a different picture to, to compare to here. Show you this one. All right, you see this? It's a recreation, but this is a statue of the goddess Athena from ancient Greece. And you can see standing on her arm is another winged creature. This is a, this is the goddess Nike. It's not a, not a Cupid figure, but the goddess Nike. Um, for those who don't know, the goddess Nike is where the shoes get their name from, um, and she was the goddess of victory. So victory in war, let's say. She was the goddess of victory. So you've got this image of the great goddess, which is exa exactly who Athena is, and this smaller miniature figure standing on her arm. Okay? And that's exactly exactly what we see in Geopoliticus. See that? Not amazing? So I don't know what you think that means. Um, and I can tell you what Dali and the art critics uh, had in mind um, in terms of meaning. Another thing I want to know, I want to show you, just I don't know what they really mean here, but a couple other things stand out. There's two things that are red in the image. One thing that's green in the image. The green thing is the is the um, leaf over uh, Eve's genitalia. The red is got a little drip of blood coming out of the egg where, where it's cracked. And then over on the other side of the egg, you have these two people standing in the distance, one of whom has a red, uh, like a red cloak on. So there's some things there. I'm not entirely sure what they mean. Um, but obviously, uh, this drip of blood has certain connotations. You can think about sacrifice and murder and death and life even. You can think about all those sorts of things. On the other side, just behind the Great Mother, you see this building, this, this sort of um, uh, statue of this building kind of uh, standing in the back. It looks something like the uh, Washington Monument um, or um, uh, what are those obelisks. It looks like an Egyptian obelisk. But it's, but it's missing something. So you kind of see this narrow, tall tower, and it just sort of stops at the top. There's no peak to it. There's no pyramid-looking peak to the top. Now, that pyramid-looking peak, if you think about the back of your $1 uh, U.S. bill, you know that that, that that pyramid is supposed to represent this climbing of, of um, well, this ascension, right, up to a point, which is also a symbol of, you know, the progress of... of um, the progress of culture, the progress of consciousness, the development of any kind, but it also shows you this sort of gradual climbing towards the highest, and the highest is something like God, right? And that image is supposed to be sort of the eye of God, right, inside that pyramid on the back of your dollar bill. It's very similar to the Egyptian image of, um, of Horus, that all-seeing eye that you see, and that represents consciousness, right? God is always watching. What does that mean? That means consciousness is aware of everything that's going on, right? You're aware. You're conscious. You're always aware of everything. All of your sins, all of your secrets, everything you're hiding. It's not a secret to consciousness. So this is the idea of the all-seeing eye. And you notice that it's missing from this, from this image. It's just cut off. It's missing. You expect it to be there, and it's not there. And I take that to mean that this image is an image of, of consciousness. Um, the reason we don't have the pyramid here above the building is because that's what we're looking at right here in the front. All of this image here is an image of, of consciousness, remember? you got the, the chaos, the order, and the divine sun. And the divine sun represents consciousness, the thing that's born from, from chaos and order. The thing that's born from the Ouroboros is consciousness and conscious experience. 
Now, there's also a connection to this new creature being born um, and this child that you see here um, to the hero story. And the hero story appears in religion and mythology all over the place. You can think about Hercules. You can think about Achilles. You can think about Jesus Christ. You can think about Buddha. You can think about all sorts of, you know, uh, um, Arjuna from the, from the Bhagavad Gita. You can think about all kinds of heroes. Um, and what a hero is, and this is, this, this is the um, psychological interpretation of the hero story, uh, is... I'm never sure how to broach this story because it's sort of convoluted, but the idea is, um, if we could begin where we, where we did earlier, that consciousness is born from its source, and its source is something that we call the unconscious. And what you have here is consciousness being born from the unconscious. Now, the great goddess represents the unconscious, and the divine son represents this, this consciousness that's been born from her. And... The idea is that it's not easy to break free from the great goddess. It's not easy to stand on your own as something new, you know, as a conscious being. Um, the best way I can explain this is if you can think about the unconscious in the most pleasant and appealing way you can. Think about a deep sleep and how comfortable that is and how difficult it is to wake up and pull yourself out of bed and into work and responsibility. Um, think about how good it is, the idea of just staying there in that unconscious sleep, in the warmth of your blankets. You don't want to go out into the cold, you know. It's better there. I don't have to do anything. Nothing's being asked of me. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. You know, I'm, I'm, I feel good. My body feels good. Just let me sleep. That kind of a thing. So imagine, imagine, and, and another good analogy is uh, what it must be like to be a, a burgeoning human being in the womb of your mother it's like the same sort of story i just told you're a fetus you're in this warm dark place you're not being asked to do anything you know all of your growth and everything happening within you is automatic you're not doing anything you don't have any responsibilities or any work you just your job is to is to sit there and receive nutrition which is coming into you automatically and to sleep you know and it's and it's like this warm hammock that you're in. And, you know, there's something about that that sounds very appealing, especially if you're tired, you know, uh, especially if you're overworked or, or overexerted. Something about that seems like peace. Um, you know, people who have suicidal uh, thoughts or uh, people that who have drug addiction, they also understand these sorts of things. You know, like if, you're, if your life seems so difficult and damaged and ir irreparable that you think it would be better if you didn't exist. The idea of just no longer being conscious, no longer being alive, that might seem like a relief to you. You know, a lot of people who think that way um, will say things like that. If you, you can take a heroin addict as another example, somebody whose life has become torturous, right, because they're, this drug is out of their system and they're going through withdrawal and everything's terrible. And all they want is the sweet release of that drug again. And when they do, they, they experience that momentary, blissful release and relief and pleasure um, that kind of makes it all worth it, you know? And that's the kind of unconsciousness that I'm talking about. You can imagine how appealing that might be in all of those different scenarios. Now imagine you were being, you imagine you were a consciousness being born from that, and every moment you find yourself as your own unique individual, simultaneously what's happening is you're pulling yourself free of this unconscious background. You know, you're literally struggling to pull yourself free of that bliss that I just talked about. You can imagine how hard that must be, how determined you must be to be pulling yourself away from such pleasure and peace because the because what you're trading it for is consciousness and it's not all good right consciousness comes with toil and torment and fear and you know inadequacy and uh, all sorts of things self-consciousness in all kinds of ways so obviously it takes well it takes quite a quite a person it takes a hero 
to voluntarily throw away all of that peace and comfort and nothingness in order to in order to to take on a conscious existence of its own and so it's it requires a hero to become conscious requires a hero and this is the hero story that plays out in all of our lives Everyone, every individual human being has exactly this pattern over and over and over again. They find, they find themselves in some sort of comfortable stasis, some sort of comfortable place where the, everything is known and they don't have a lot of you know, concerns or worries. And things change in your life. You find yourself in the chaos again. And what you have to do is voluntarily wrestle that chaos fight that dragon and find a new stasis and that new stasis is a new you you know you're not the same person you were you know before you got divorced and found yourself again you're not the same person you were before you you know uh disciplined your body and mind to accomplish this feat that you that you always wanted to do right anything like that that you can imagine is going to make you a new version of yourself that's a new consciousness just like a newborn baby being born into the world it's a brand new consciousness. It's the divine son. That's the baby Jesus figure. That's the baby Horus figure from the Egyptian story. That's the Marduk figure from the Sumerian story. That's consciousness. That's you and me. So this is what I see in the Salvador Dali painting. This is the meaning that seems very clear to me. You've got the great mother, the great father. You've got the divine son. You've got the new consciousness being born. You've got all the symbols of the Ouroboros, the light, the dark, the cosmic egg, all of it. Seems like it makes perfect sense to me. So let me change gears now, and I want to show you what Wikipedia says. Where are you, Wikipedia? There you are. All right, so now we're looking at Wikipedia here, and you guys can see this. Um, very, very brief, but it's talking about this particular painting, and it says, the painting was done while Salvador was in the United States, and the painting, if you want to go see it, it's at the Salvador Dali Museum in, in St. Petersburg, Florida, um, so you can go see the real thing if you want. But Salvador Dali left some interesting um, notes uh, I'll just put it this way. It, it reads like this. Dali provided some abbreviated, mysterious notes about the work. Now, this is just a series of phrases and words that he gave us when we're looking at this painting to think about. I'm going to read them to you. Parachute. Um, Parenaissance, which just seems to be a made-up word to me. Something like parachute and renaissance put together. Um, protection. Culpa. Placenta, Catholicism, egg, earthly distortion, biological ellipse, geography changes its skin in historic germination. Okay, so this is what Dali was thinking when he made this painting. So I don't know what parachute or, or you know, um, uh, Paranot, par whatever that fucking word is. I don't know what they what they mean exactly in this in this situation. Um, you might say that the sheets and that the that I was talking about um, above and below the egg look like a parachute. Maybe there's something there. Um, protection, culpa, something like an apology, placenta. Obviously, an egg go together as, as part of this this new birth um, imagery. Catholicism is put in there, which I think is interesting because it's the only reference to this being a religious um, symbol. And it's not even, you know, it's the sixth word on the list. You know, it's not even high up the list. But that's what's dominating the uh, symbolism for me. Um, okay, so then let me just read uh, the subjects and symbolism section and so you can kind of get an idea of what the art historians think. It goes like this. The egg is a common subject in Dali's work. Early in his career, eggs commonly symbolized hope and love. However, child watching the birth of the new man and other later works mimic the egg as a Christian symbol of purity and perfection. Dali uses the leaking yellow yolk of the egg to map the world onto the egg. And the man emerging from the egg is the new man referenced in the title 
and the geopoliticus child can be seen crouching in the lower right-hand corner. The new man emerges from the egg, where North America should be, breaking through the rising power excuse me, breaking through the rising power of the United States and resting his hand on Europe to support his emergence. South America and Africa are both enlarged relative to Europe, conveying the growing importance of the so-called third world. The draped cloth represents the placenta. The androgynous figure who the geopoliticus child holds onto is pointing at the new man, showing the child the new historical period it will represent. All right, so almost nothing at all like my interpretation. I mean, I personally like mine better, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not the artist, so um, it goes back to my point as to whether, um, the point I started with in the beginning as to whether the meaning that, that Dali intended, um, is that the only valid meaning here? Or is my interpretation also valid? And if that's the case, how? How is that possible? The artist chose symbols, right? Maybe those symbols came from the unconscious. I mean, I think that's certainly the truth. Um, And so there's meaning there that maybe he didn't recognize. But because he didn't intend it, uh, you know, I think Dali would maybe argue with me that this doesn't mean what I suggested that it means. Or he might, um, as I think maybe a good artist should, smile and nod and say, yes, it means that too. Because that's the nature of meaning, you know, it's sort it's sort of a fractal thing. Its meaning is infinite, um, and I think that maybe that's true. The meaning of symbols are infinite, and so what meaning is is something like potential. It's something like what I call what I refer to as God. It's very strange. Now, I do think that um, when Dali points out that the um, that the uh, egg has the um, the globe sort of on it here, and I'll bring it back up at the larger picture for you to see. Uh, this one here. You can definitely see that. I mean, that's clearly South America. That's clearly Africa, Saudi Arabia. There's there's Europe up there. You can see all of that. And so the painting was made uh, in the 40s, and that was right, obviously, during the Second World War. Um, I can definitely see legitimate... Um, Motifs that have to do with uh, geopolitics. I mean, geopoliticus is the name of the freaking work, you know, as it is. Um, and uh, the idea that he's pushing, the, that the, the man that's emerging from the egg is pushing on uh, Europe kind of as a way of emerging and clearly coming out of the place where the United States would be on the egg if it were there. Um, you've got this new political giant being born, this new superpower being born on the world stage. All that seems like a legitimate... Um, interpretation also. You can see multiple levels of meaning here. The same way that you can read multiple levels of meaning in the same book, in the same poem, in the same song at different times in your life. So I don't really have a whole lot more to add to that. I guess what I wanted to do, and this was none of this was scripted or prepared, I wanted to riff on that image, on that symbolic image, and allow, without thinking about it ahead of time, allow those thoughts and images to come into my mind, just like, um, you know, that active imagination sort of thing that uh, Carl Jung talked about doing, allow those symbols and meaning from my unconscious to present themselves to me based upon the images I'm seeing in the world. The meaning there and the associations there are all of my own creation, but the images weren't of my own creation. So the question I want to ask you and I want to leave you with is, do you think that meaning beyond what is intended by the artist is valid? Like what I just said when I was doing my own interpretation. And even though it wasn't what the artist intended, it seems very valid to me. It seems cohesive, coherent, and meaningful to me. In fact, there's very little in that image that doesn't fit into the model that I painted out. So what does that say about meaning? What does it say about symbols? And if we, if we allow ourselves to imagine the world of our perception to be symbolic, just like myths and poems and you know, paintings are symbolic, just like dreams are symbolic, 
and they can have more than one valid interpretation. What does that mean about the world? Let me know. Let me know your thoughts, guys. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.